0: And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I have to start with a little apologizing because I didn't exactly recall what Jeff and I were going to be discussing today because I thought we had a little bit of cleanup on cleanup aisle five uh, on our series, but we don't have to cover any of that because it's now officially all behind us. So Jeff said, no, 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 we're starting in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians today. We, did. we cleaned it up. We cleaned it up. So, you know, that was just a mental lapse I had. So I apologize to you, and then I did tell my listeners we were going to do that. But the good news is, uh, it's all behind us, and we're going to jump right into 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, which I'm looking forward to
1: studying this, Jeff. Thank you for uh, taking this on. Absolutely. I've started doing this in my Sunday class a few weeks back, and it's been going so well. I thought, you know what? We're going to do this on the radio as well. I love it. Jeff Redorn is my guest, and he is a Bible teacher and
0: friend and regular, and you maybe hear him on Tuesdays a couple times a month and also on Guy Talk regularly. So, Jeff, uh, let's dig in. 1 Thessalonians. I will read
1: wherever you like. Absolutely. I'm I'm having a little bit of a voice thing, so I'm going to have you read the passages uh, when we get to verse 1 here in a second and then we'll stop and we'll every once in a while we'll take a look and we'll talk about what we have just read uh, but about the book itself the Thessalonians were facing a significant persecution and we will see actually when we actually get to Thes- second Thessalonians they actually believed that they were in the end times they thought they they had a rudimentary understanding of God's plan for the end of the age but their persecution was so severe that they actually thought they were in the tribulation already, and Paul's going to have to set them straight. I actually, you know, this question about, man, Are we look around the world, we see the angst of this world. It seems like in some way that evil has been released in, in maybe a new way in this country and around the world. We just came off a global pandemic. The globalist forces seem to be advancing. It seems that... That traditional uh, understandings of sexuality, of morality, of marriage seem to be th- being thrown out the window. I think there's many Christians who have been have felt led to pray for their country, their nation in in a new way because they have just kind of felt, man, things just don't seem right, and evil seems to be advancing. Well, guess what? The Thessalonians felt exactly the same way. Um, and, and today I think this is one of the most common questions that I've been getting lately as an end times teacher. I often teach on the end times. I love to teach on the end times and people are asking, man, the rapture has got to be just around the corner. Are we approaching the end times? Is this the end times? And, uh, so it was a question that the Thessalonians faced and Paul, as we're going to see in virtually every single chapter of Thessalonians, he is going to give them and write them about the hope that we have that one day Jesus is going to come back and take us to be with him and there we will be with the Lord forever. And so he gives them this hope. In fact, when we get to chapter four of 1 Thessalonians, when he talks about this event called the rapture, he's going to say, therefore, encourage one another with these words. And the other thing he does In these two books is give not only gives them hope uh, specifically of this coming of the Lord but also he instructs them uh, in in several places about godly living and you know it's it's really interesting because God makes this connection between our hope of his coming and how we live our lives so I'm gonna read from first John 3 for example because John says it this way he says dear friends Now, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We don't know about all of our glorification yet. It hasn't happened yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be glorified like him when he appears. Well, what is that day? That's the rapture day. Mm -hmm. The rapture is our resurrection day when we will be glorified. We will be made like him when he appears. And John goes on to say, for we will see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope, this hope of the coming Christ, in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so, Bill, there is this purifying effect, if you will, of having this hope of the Lord's appearing, his glorious appearing. In fact, uh, Paul calls it our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So those are the two big themes that we're going to see over the next several sessions. Mm-hmm. When you talk about uh,
0: what seems like m- more evil in the world, I-, I would say mathematically, the world population in 1970 was 3.6 billion, and now it's close to 8 billion. So uh, in the last 53 years, that there's a... An enormous
1: increase in just the population. And with that comes increased evil. A doubling in population yeah. in our lifetime. In our lifetime. And I I noticed it on, on the freeways here today, on the way <laughs> in here today. There's yeah. a lot of people out there. But you're right. The the more people and we know that there are fewer Christians than there are non Christians in the world. Right. So yes, evil is increasing.
0: Mm-hmm. Jeff Redorn is my guest. We're gonna be going through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians today, well not today, we're going to cover it in the next several sessions, but looking forward to this, and already, Jeff, um, it is so interesting that the Thessalonians were thinking they were living in end times.
1: They really were, and when we get to 2nd Thessalonians, that will, that will will we'll see that very clearly. They thought they missed it. They thought they missed the rapture and were actually in the tribulation period, and Paul has to correct them, so we will get to that. So, okay. But why don't, can you start reading and just in verse 1, and we're going to pause right after verse 1, but uh, and then we'll read a couple more after that. Yes.
0: Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ,
1: grace and peace to you. Okay, so pause just for a second. I, I just have to comment on these two words that Paul uses so often in his letters, both to greet people and in his closing, and that is grace and peace, grace charis in the greek that which affords joy pleasure delight sweetness charm loveliness oh isn't mm. grace the amazing the best now someone needs to write a song about this amazing grace sometime it's because mm-hmm. it truly is and peace a state the greek word here is it means a state of tranquility now we know That when you put your faith in Christ, you have peace with God. That is the reconciliation that we have with God. We were separated from God. We were apart from God. We were God's enemies. And when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are brought near to God. We are reconciled with God. We are justified. We are made righteous. We are at peace with God. But I think Paul here writing to believers is speaking of the peace of God. And I, I love Philippians four, for example, in verses six and seven, where he says, "Do not be anxious about anything, but through prayer with thanksgiving bring your requests to God." And then he says, "The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." That is the peace of Paul's greeting here. Mm-hmm. All right, verse two. All
0: right, verse two, two and three. Two and three. We always thank God for. All of you, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: I love how you emphasize the word always when you read that, because that's where I was going to go here for a second. Notice Paul says he always. I actually don't think Paul is using hyperbole here. I think Paul prayed continually as he instructs us to pray. Pray continually, he says. I think Paul was a man of prayer and continually mentioned them, the Thessalonians, in his prayers. Um, and so I think he just prayed a lot and I think that's a model for us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, pray continually. Um, I know, and you know, we've talked about this in the shower, when you get up, when you lie down, in the car, um, we tend to fill our attention with our phones, with television, with movies, with music, with talk, with whatever. And and, and often, you know what, so, and, and I shouldn't say this on a radio program, sometimes driving in your car, turn uh, that volume down. Uh, uh, I know, I know, I shouldn't say that. No. But talk to God, pray to God. Um, and right. Paul did it always. But two, here we have these three words faith, hope, and love. He says, produced by your work, produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Um, by the way, if you recall, which is the greatest one of those three? Love. It is love, faith, mm-hmm. hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, I often ask in my class, well, why? Why is love the greatest? And I, I never really get to the answer that I'm truly looking for.
0: I'll take a shot at it. Okay. Well, in eternity, we won't need hope or faith. That's there will, there will just be one thing remaining.
1: That is exactly right. So faith become, just as the song says, right? It is well with my soul. One of the greatest hymns of all time. It says when faith becomes sight and the sky be rolled back as a scroll, Right. Um so our faith will be sight and our hope will we have hope in eternity? No, Paul writes who hopes for what he already has. We will have it. We will possess it. So I'd love to teach on the end times when we when we won't a time when we won't need faith and we won't need hope in order to grow our faith and our hope right now today but love remains. And I think that's why it's The greatest. Mm -hmm. All right, we're
0: going to take a break. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're going through First and Second Thessalonians in this short study. This won't probably be more than a couple of sessions with Jeff, but um, we'll be right back in just a minute. I am back with Jeff Redorn. We're talking about 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. That's the study. We we'll probably won't get too far today, but we're going to cover this in a short series, maybe three or four sessions. But I'm awfully glad to get things started, Jeff. Uh, I think last time we left off, I was about to start uh, verse 4 in 1st Thess. May I continue? Yes. All right. It says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by
1: God. Okay. Pause for a second. Okay. I got to make a comment because there's probably a text note next to that phrase there, "brothers and sisters." There is. There click, is. Let me click on it.
0: Yeah, yeah. What does it say? Uh, the Greek word for brothers and sisters, adelphoi, refers here to believers, both men and women, as part of God's family.
1: It is so that Greek word is actually a noun. It's plural, but it is it, the gender in in Greek is masculine. So the proper the proper translation, if you're looking for a very precise translation, would just be brothers or brethren. But the translators in several versions of the Bible, English version of the Bibles, have decided that they want to add brothers and sisters to make it more inclusive because it includes men and women believers, obviously. But I guess the question is, do we want our translators adding Any words to the Bible or should they just translate it more precisely and precisely would just be brothers or brethren? Well, brethren back then was fully understood that uh, you were both male and female were included in that. Correct. So Greek, like many other languages in the world, have masculine and feminine nouns. So this word, brethren, would have, everybody would have understood it. And I actually think it's easy for us today, even in the English, to understand that Paul is actually referring to both men and women here. But the NIV translators and actually other English languages have decided to put in brothers and sisters. Now, I am glad that they at a minimum they did the footnote. Yeah, they put a footnote too. there so that you can actually see that. All right, All right let's let
0: keep reading. Me, let me start again. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that He has chosen you.
1: Okay, stop again. Oh, boy, we're not we're not getting very far very fast, no. here, are we? I was hoping to read faster, but that's yeah. okay. So this word "chosen," we have to stop here because this is such a big word, a loaded word in a lot of ways, and a controversial word. Uh, This word does mean chosen in the Greek, and it's basically a description of those who are in Christ, not how we were included in Christ. Let me repeat that. This is a description of those who are in Christ, not a description of how we were included in Christ, meaning God does not choose some unto salvation. We are saved by faith, and we're going to talk about that a little deeper here in just a second. This is a description that we, as believers, who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been saved, are the chosen of God. We are God's chosen people. We are the saved. We are chosen of God. We are chosen, by the way, to be holy and blameless In this world, we are chosen to be salt and light. We are chosen to preach the gospel in this world. That is what we are chosen for. We are chosen unto our role or our service, not unto salvation. Now, now I I understand that this debate uh, kind of uh, over this kind of Calvinistic idea of being chosen that God chooses some and therefore also does not choose others has been raging for hundreds of years, about 500 years since the Protestant Reformation and some of the debates that have been going on since Calvin. Um, I, I, I see in scripture this simple truth, and it's not really an ism. I think this division between, say, Calvinism and Arminianism, by the way, is a debate that has been set up by man. And there is actually a third option. I call it biblicalism, And it goes something like this. This is what I see in Scripture. God loves all. He wishes none to perish. So he sent Christ into the world for, to die for the sins of the world. He offers salvation to whosoever. And whosoever believes will be saved. God will save them. And the saved are now called out of this world. We are God's elect. We are his chosen. We are his called out ones in this world. And we have eternal life. That eternal life lasts forever. And we can have true assurance of our salvation. That is God's simple plan of salvation. I like. All right. Verse five.
0: All right. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also
1: with power with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Isn't that, hold on a second. Oh. Isn't that such a wonderful promise? I know that so many Christians don't share the gospel of Jesus Christ with their friends, neighbors, coworkers, and so on. Because well, I think there's a lot of reasons. they They don't feel they're equipped. They don't feel they're qualified, even though God has qualified you to be a minister of reconciliation in this world but they're scared, they're fearful of the consequences or whatever, but here's the promise of God. When you preach the gospel, he comes right alongside of you with power and deep conviction. Use God's word when you speak to the world. The, God's word has power. Man's word does not. Hebrews 4.12 says that about God's word, that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates, dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, I recently heard a story of a Jewish man who was raised Jewish, not particularly religious, and he saw a billboard and it read, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said that. Well, he didn't know much about the man Jesus, really didn't know anything about his teachings, but he felt weary and burdened, and and he couldn't get these words out of his head Mm -hmm. because he also saw that word rest, and he so desired rest, he said. And this word just pierced his soul, he said. Isn't that just like what we just read in, in Hebrews 4? And it struck his heart. It pierced his soul. And he knew he needed and wanted that rest that this man Jesus that he knew very little about was talking about. And so he went and he started researching who this man Jesus was, and he became a believer in him. And now he has that rest. Isn't that a cool story? No, it's fantastic. Well, we were just talking to Jeff last hour about suffering.
0: And there's a lot of people who are weary, and they're in need of rest, and they've got heavy
1: burdens. And that's the product of suffering. It is. There is, you know, we live in a fallen world with fallen people making fallen decisions and a fallen angel mucking around everything up. And 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 uh, it's a it's it is there is so much burden Mm -hmm. out there. And if people just knew the Lord Jesus Christ, he would lift those burden. His way is his yoke is easy and he will come to give you freedom and peace and joy, that peace that surpasses all understanding. It's such a spectacular promise, Jeff. And, you know, John talks about,
0: in John, Jesus says, peace is what I leave with you. It is my own peace that I give you. So it's like, what is this private stash of peace you have that Mm.
1: you're giving specifically to us that comes right from you? I want more of that. You know, I've heard so many Christians speak of their faith in this world, and someone will come up to them and say, you know, what is it about you? You know, you just seem to have so much peace. Everything, You know, you just have such contentment. What's different about you? And, you know, that's the moment that you say, oh, I, I, I perceive that this just might be a witnessing opportunity, right, to tell them about that Christ who's in my heart. Yeah, we call that an evangelical
0: opportunity. There you go. Mm, love it. All right, let's keep reading. All right. Um, let's see. We, I You know how you, well. Pardon, you, when should, you know how we lived. Yeah. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out, From you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in
1: God has become known everywhere. Okay, pause for a second. Paul is basically saying you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. Paul says to the Corinthians, I urge you to imitate me, he says. So he sends Timothy and he will remind you of the way that I taught you. And so be imitators of me. He later says, follow my example, 1 Corinthians 11, 1. You know, do you remember it was a craze to have those WWJD bracelets for a while? What yeah. would Jesus do? I actually think it would be better for Christians to have a WWPD bracelet. What would Paul do? Why do I say that? Because Jesus was born under the law. He lived under the law. He taught under the law. He died under the law. Everything he did was under law. Paul taught us about the grace of God, the gospel, about being born again, about being a new creation in him. He's living the New Testament Christian walk. All right. We'll be right back after
0: a short break. We are studying First and Second Thessalonians with Jeff Ferdorn. If you have a question or comment, 877-933-2484. So glad you joined me today. Jeff Redorn is in studio with me, and we're going through First Thessalonians. We're probably not going to get to 2nd today. Right, Jeff? Uh, correct. Okay. All right. I'm doing some of the reading, some of the heavy lifting. Where would you like me to continue?
1: Let's continue in uh, verse 9, right before verse 9. Therefore. Therefore, we do not need anyone. Uh, we don't. <laughs>
0: there. Go ahead. No, 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 let me try again. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the
1: coming wrath. Oh, so there's... At the end of that, we'll get to that in a minute, that there is the promise at the end of this chapter that there is a time that Jesus is coming and he's going to rescue us from the true wrath that's going to come upon the world. But before that, we see right before that, it says they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Oh, what a picture right they were serving god it sounds like they're doing pretty good they're letting their light shine before men matthew 5 they're living good lives amongst the pagans right according to like peter instructs instructs they turn from the idols to serve the living god this turning is actually the greek word epistrepho epastrepho and it means to turn specifically it's to turn to god now, this is not repentance. Often people will say that repentance is a turning. Repentance in Greek in the New Testament is actually a little bit different. It's that metanoeo, and it means to change one's mind. But this is really God's call on all of mankind to turn to God, the epistrifo, ep- uh, ep- the Greek, or Metanoeo, to repent, to change your mind. To pistouio, another Greek word, to believe. His call to turn, to repent, to believe. These are all really the same call. And I want to spend some time here because this call of God is is his biggest call on mankind that there is. To trust in him, to turn to him, to repent, to change your mind about God, to turn from the things of this world and turn to God. God's call to believe in him is actually all over scripture. Can I read like parts of a whole bunch of scriptures? Yes. God says Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate. Mark 1, repent and believe the good news. Luke 13, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Boy, that sounds just like John 3:16, unless you believe You will perish. They're the same thing. God is asking you to do the same thing. Turn, repent, believe. John 6, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Believe me when I say that I am from the Father, John 14 says. John 20, but these have been written, written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Acts 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 3, repent and turn to God. Do you see a pattern here? Mm-hmm. Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. One of the greatest answers to one of the biggest questions ever asked in human history when the jailer asked Paul in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? His answer so simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Acts 26, I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove that they've repented, have been saved by their deeds. Revelation 14, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come Isaiah 45 turn to me all the ends of the earth and be saved I mean over and over in scripture God uses these these terms really interchangeably to repent to turn to him believe in him they're really the same thing I make a big deal about this because some in Christianity want to make these things all different steps in salvation like, first you need to do this, then you need to turn, then you need to repent, then you need to have a change of mind, then you need to believe in him, and so on. No, I think they're all the same. God is asking you to trust in him for your eternal salvation. And when you do that, you are you have a change of mind. You have turned from the world to God. You have believed in him. These are all the same call, and the verses that I just read, uh, I think, show that.
0: Mm-hmm. Jeff okay. Dorn is my guest. We're going through First Thessalonians, so get your Bibles out.
1: So, back to verse 10. Okay. And he, and he says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, wow, what is this? What event is this? Well, theologically, you really have two main events to choose from is it the rapture of the church or is it the second coming of Jesus Christ and much of our study of Thessalonians is going to center around this question because Paul actually mentions this event in every chapter in both first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians i don't know if you knew that or not but this event which i think represents the rapture of the church is mentioned in every chapter I will say this, except for 2 Thessalonians at the end, the last chapter, because that's basically a final greeting and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cleaning things up after these two two letters. Um, so, I, I study, when I study scripture, I have an NIV study Bible. It's an NIV, 1984, and I just thought I'd read you what they say about this verse. The theme of this verse, they say, the subject of eschatology seems to be a predominant uh, theme in both the letters to the Thessalonians. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ and chapter 4 giving it major consideration. Thus, the second coming seems to be a a major part of the letter and may be viewed in some sense as the main theme. So is this the second coming or is this the rapture of the church? Is Paul going to state the rapture in every chapter coming up in this book, or is it the second coming? Well, I think where we should start to make this determination is let's read about the second coming of Jesus, because there's a two specific places, especially Revelation 19 and Matthew 24, that we know God is describing the second coming of Christ. Okay, so will you turn to Revelation 19? We'll do that one first. And I'm going to ask you, because at the end of the book of Revelation, which is the book about all of the details, um, many of the details of the seven-year tribulation period that is going to come upon the world, towards the back of that book, we have this description of Jesus coming back to earth at his second coming. Start in verse 11. Mm -hmm. I saw heaven
0: standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has
1: this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yeah. Whenever I hear that passage, I just want to hear a hallelujah or an amen or you know, he's coming back to earth. He's not coming the second time as a baby in a manger riding a donkey into Jerusalem. He's coming back on a horse to wage war, to conquer. He's got the sword coming out of the mouth. He's king of kings and lord of lords, and he's coming back to to, to tread the winepress of the wrath of God and to establish his kingdom, the millennial reign, which will last a thousand years on earth. Wow. Now, that passage continues and you actually see some of the results of his treading the winepress of all of these armies that are destroyed at his coming. Uh, it says he talks about the kings of the earth and the armies were gathered together to make war against him. Uh, but, of course, Christ prevails, uh, just like happens in Second Chronicles 20 with King Jehoshaphat when he was surrounded by a whole bunch of armies and he had no hope, and there was no way he was going to defeat these armies. He prays to God. God rescues him. All the armies in front of Jehoshaphat turn upon one another, and they're, they're annihilated before his very eyes. In the same way, Israel would have been destroyed had not Jesus returned to come to destroy all those armies. And that's the picture we're seeing right here. Mm. He then that. takes the beast, this Antichrist, And the false prophet, who is actually described as the second beast. These are the two main characters, the two main evil characters of the tribulation period. They're thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And the rest of these armies are, it says in verse 21, are killed with the sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ. With a word, he is going to strike down all of these armies. With a word, he does it. So some key points here. At the second coming, we have armies following Jesus from heaven down to earth the the next chapter we see that he sets up his millennial reign for a thousand years we, we didn't read that but that's what happens next in the book of Revelation we see wrath and swords and and this is where the blood rises up to the horse's bridle we get we got the beast being thrown into the lake of fire and on and on turn to Matthew 24 because there's another clear picture of the second coming of jesus when he comes down from heaven to earth and that's at the end of matthew 24 now matthew 24 is all about the tribulation period jesus is describing events of the tribulation of that seven-year period and at the end of that this is what we read start in verse 29 immediately After the distress of those days... Pause just for a second. Okay. Immediately after the tribulation period... All right, keep reading. The sun
0: will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven... With power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds,
1: from one end of the heavens to the other. So, some key points here once again we have this distress, this tribulation. So, immediately after the distress or tribulation of those days, in here we have an addition of the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavenly bodies shaken. When those things happen, the world is not going to miss this day, by the way, this day when Jesus returns to earth. It's a day, as the Old Testament says, like no other day. The sky is going to be rolled back. In fact, when his feet, Zechariah tells us his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, the same mountain, by the way. That he rose up to heaven in Acts chapter one. He's going to come down. And Zachariah says his feet will stand on that mountain. And, and, and God says there's going to be such a great earthquake that no earthquake has ever been like it since the beginning of the world until then. The earth is going to shake at his presence and tremble. Unmistakable. Unmistakable. Mm-hmm. That is the second coming. Now, as we go through these descriptions of what is called the rapture, we're going to have to look for, does it sound like that day or does it sound like a different day? At the rapture, we're going to see that we, the church, are caught up to heaven with him where we will be with the Lord. At the second coming, we are going the other way. The armies of heaven were following him from heaven back down to earth. And there's many differences that we'll start discussing between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ.
0: All right, we'll take a little break. Jeff Verdorn is my guest. We're in 1 Thessalonians. We've gone through the first chapter. Uh, we're going to continue through the book and also do 2 Thessalonians in this little series. But if you have a question or a comment, you can text it over, 877 933 We'll be right back. Back with Jeff Ferdorn, we're talking about 1 uh, Thessalonians. All right, Jeff, we only have one segment left. How are we going to wrap this one up?
1: Well, let's first finish by making uh, some more distinction between this event called the rapture and the event called the second coming and show that there they're there two different events. So, right before the break, we said that at the rapture, we're going to see that Christ comes for his own and that those who are alive and remain, 1 Thessalonians 4 are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds. So the church is moving from earth up into the air and heaven. John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will certainly come back and take you to be where I am also. Well, where is Jesus? He's in heaven. So we go up to heaven at the rapture. At the second coming, which you just read in Revelation 19, we see the armies of heaven following him, dressed in fine linen. We see in the chapter previously that are earlier in that chapter, I'm sorry, Revelation 19, that the church is in heaven, uh, dressed in fine linen, uh, waiting to come down with Jesus back to earth and reign with him on earth for a thousand years. So one of the biggest distinctions between these two events is the direction of travel Mm -hmm. at the rapture. We're going up at the second coming. We're going down. Uh, Obviously, we meet him in the air at the rapture. We come down to earth at the second coming. Uh, The rapture is described as as him coming for his bride, for his people at the second coming. uh, We are coming with him. But there's wrath. There's 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 a war Uh, at the rapture. We see that the tribulation is going to begin, and at the end of the tribulation, at the second coming, the tribulation is ending. You read it in Matthew 24, immediately after the distress of those days is when Jesus comes back to earth. Um, There's a number of more uh, distinction between these two events, but at this point in time, I want to focus on the fact that these are two different events and just establish that from Scripture. The next part of this passage where it says that we wait for his son from heaven, it says this, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Well, what is the coming wrath? What is that? Well, we know that at a minimum, the second coming of Christ is the wrath. We just saw that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God at his second coming. So we as believers are at least rescued from that wrath. But as you read through the book of Revelation, you realize that there are the, all these judgments, Bill. There are seven seal judgments. There are seven trumpet judgments. And there are seven bowl judgments or vile judgments. All of these judgments are from God. Jesus himself opens up the seals. Angels blow the trumpets, the seven trumpet judgments. And angels pour out the bowls on the earth as the seven Bowl judgments. This is all God's wrath. Some want to make the case that only the bowl judgments are God's wrath. But I think they miss that Scripture says that all of it is from God. God is pouring out his wrath over this seven-year period through seals and trumpets and bowl judgments and actually a number of other things. Um, But they're all from wrath. In fact, Revelation 15, it says that in the bowls, the wrath of God is complete. It doesn't say that this is only the wrath of God. It says that the wrath of God is complete. So at the end of the tribulation, when the bowls are being poured out, God's wrath is starting to end. And we see it completely end in the second coming of Christ when he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. But it's all God's wrath. In fact, it's the time of distress that Matthew talked about. And the church does not experience the wrath of God. I've got another list of passages here. So if you indulge me, I want to read several of them. Please do. Starting with, say, Romans 8, verse 1, that says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But John three thirty six says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not save life, for God's wrath remains on him. Unbelievers are under the wrath of God. Believers are not under the wrath of God. So to believers, God says over and over, for example, Romans 5, he says that we are, will be saved from God's wrath through him. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, which we're in right now, says he rescues us from the coming wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, we'll get there. He says, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through Christ. It then goes on to say that you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day will overtake you like a thief. So this day that's coming upon the world will not overtake us. Luke says we're worthy to escape this wrath of God. Revelation 3.10 says he will keep us from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the world. That has to be the tribulation period. And God says to the church that he keeps us from that hour. And then finally, we have the picture in Scripture and Luke 17 He says, just as in the days of Noah, he says, people will be eating and drinking and marrying right up until the day that Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came upon them and destroyed them all. And he says, the rapture, the end times, will be exactly like the days of Noah. Well, picture Noah. He's building a boat, there's a door. Noah and his family enter the door, God shuts the door and they then basically leave. They're not part of the flood, right? God protects them, keeps them, and the flood comes upon the rest of the world. Well, so too during the end times. We actually have the imagery of a door in heaven this time, not in an ark, but in heaven. Revelation 4 says the church is caught up to heaven. We go through that door, and the door is Jesus Christ. We then are in the... Heavenly ark, if you will, for this seven-year period until the end where we come out and come back with Jesus and set foot once again on earth. It's the same, same. Luke 17 goes on to say it was the same with the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. It kind of sounds like life was going on. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's exactly the way it will be before the rapture. Life will be going on. There's no signs for the rapture. There's no prophecies that need to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. Scripture indicates that the rapture will happen. It will come as a thief in the night when we are not expecting it at some unannounced time just as the groom would come back for his bride john 14 at an unannounced time and blow the trumpet and take the bride back to his father's house so too at an unannounced time god is going to blow the trumpet the heavenly trumpet the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of god and we are going to be taken by the groom back up to heaven just like the bride lot was saved from the destruction of sodom and gomorrah God took Lot out. His wrath was poured out on the cities mm-hmm. that he had left. Noah did not experience the flood. We, as the bride of Christ, are saved from this tribulation. He rescues us from the coming wrath, 1 Thessalonians one ten. We will talk over the next several sessions. We've made the distinction between the rapture and the second coming. mm mm-hmm. We're going to have to place the timing of this rapture. But if we're rescued from the coming wrath right away with one verse, Bill, we've really established that the rapture must happen prior to the wrath of the tribulation being poured out on the world. That is what theologians call a pre-tribulational rapture. Mm-hmm.
0: Won't there be some people arguing, Jeff, that the fact Jesus will rescue us from the coming wrath that in
1: will we will be in the midst of the wrath, but still rescued from it. Yeah, that is an argument uh, that is sometimes made. That see, you know, um, Noah was in the ark and he was floating on the waters of the of the flood, and therefore we are going to be going have to go through the tribulation and somehow preserved through it. Yeah, um, yeah. I think there's a couple things that we'll ha- we'll have to expand on over yeah. the next couple sessions. But the rapture and the second coming are two different events. The rapture has to precede the wrath of God that's coming upon them. All world. right,
0: Jeff, that sounds like a real cliffhanger. We're going to continue this with Jeff uh, two weeks from today. So make sure you don't miss it. That's all the show we have for today. Thanks to Randy Nelson and to Jeff Redorn, my two amazing guests today. I hope you had a wonderful day. And thank you for spending as much time as you could with me today. And we're uh, so grateful that you listen and support Faith Radio. So thank you so much. Love you a bunch. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.